Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. Please listen to episode 000, an introduction for the full backstory about this podcast series. On this episode, we have Machine Gun Trey Anastasio of the band Fish. At the time of this interview in 1993, Fish was on tour supporting their third album, A Picture of Nectar. And in the interview, Trey talks about how Fish practices their musical improv techniques, what music will look like in the year 2000, and how he'd like to start a family. At the time, Trey was 29 years old and on the cusp of becoming an acclaimed musician. For me, Trey is right up there with Hendrix, Zappa, and any other guitar great you can think of. On a side note, I have to tell you about the later strange connection between the interviewer Mark Allen and Trey. On August 10th, 1997, Mark reviewed Fish's concert at Deer Creek Music Center in Noblesville, Indiana, and wrote one of the most negative reviews he's ever written. One line in the review that stands out, and I quote, Fish could urinate in its fans' ears and tell them its music. The fans, in turn, would be there with tape recorders to capture the moment. Unquote, Mark Allen, August 11, 1997. The review was forwarded to Trey and he read it aloud in front of cameras that were rolling for the upcoming documentary Bittersweet Motel. While Mark riled up books across the U.S. with his review, Trey seemed to understand where Mark was coming from and took the critique in the most Trey way. If you'd like to see Trey's reaction, I have put a link to that video clip in the show notes and on our website. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line. You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared him to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And by God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line. The true story of Tony Karitsis. This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. How are you doing? Just fine. How are you? Great, thanks. Good. Were you in Cincinnati? I'm in Cincinnati. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Just checking my area code knowledge, you know? Oh, yeah. uh, You must be having the same ugly, uh, looks like it's going to rain day that we're having. We're, We're not. Really? Not outside my window. Oh, my God. There's some clouds on the horizon, but it's, uh, the sun is beaming through where I am. Gee, we're, we're only 100 miles away, but uh, uh, on to the real issues at hand here. <laughs> um, world peace. Yes, world peace. World peace and fish music. Okay. Um, in uh, these days, I mean, where you sort of have to have a little niche to fit in and a, an, an explanation for everything. Uh, how do you guys get away with this? How do we get away with it? Yeah. Uh, perseverance? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I think that might be it. We've, we've been going for about 10 years now and um, just basically making decisions based on what we really, I, I hope, making decisions based on what we really enjoy doing as opposed to what would be 
you know, something that would make the big bucks or whatever. Uh, boy, that sounds idealistic, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> I guess maybe, I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, having a whole lot of fun. We we had planned on being a sort of a touring act from the beginning. If, if there was a conscious decision, it was to do that, to to get our lives into the situation where we could support ourselves from touring. And so decisions were made with that in mind, I think. So no, no plan to be a big like record-selling band, just you want people to come out and see you? And, well, that uh, was the, that. yeah, that was the, there, had, there was never, a, we never talked about getting signed or we never pursued that. Uh, we always pursued buying, a, you know, a better sound system and, and practicing doing musical exercises that would improve improvisation and stuff like that. That always seemed to sort of be the goal, and everything else just fell naturally into place. So what, what kind of uh, improvisational exercises can you do? Well, we've been doing things, um, the latest one, they kind of they kind of build on each other, and um, without sounding confusing, we do this thing where, uh, right before this tour, what we're doing, we'll sit around in a circle four of us, right? Okay. One of us will play a music, a short, repetitive musical phrase. Um, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, each of the other band members will then sort of complement that phrase with some kind of counter phrase until you have sort of a bed of sound going with everyone playing repetitive things. And the idea is that each person is listening to the other three. And as soon as they hear that... Um, the other three people have locked in. They they yell, hey. <laughs> so each person says, hey. And as soon as you yell, hey, the person to your right, the person to the right of the initiator of the exercise, then slightly modulates their phrase in some way, rhythmically, harmonically, or melodically. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as that happens, the other three members then slightly adjust their phrase to fit with the new phrase. And when you hear that all the other three people have locked into that new phrase, you scream, hey, again. And you, you can't move in on to the next person until each person has screamed, hey. And you can't scream, hey, until you've heard that every person has locked into the new phrase. Now, it sounds weird and complicated, but the, the gist, the, the cru- crux of the biscuit there is... Um, it's the apostrophe. I know. Right, it's the apostrophe. <laughs> No, it, the gist is that you, um, you you have to be listening actively to every other person in the room that's playing with you, as opposed to sort of getting into your own guitar part or getting into your, you know, one person, you know, just focusing in on the drummer. It's a, and it's, hard, it's very hard to listen actively to three different things at the same time. Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> How yeah. do you concentrate on that? Yeah. It's, it's hard, and, and the, the exercise has been, it's great because then we've done exercises like this over the years well, when we practice, and uh, it's tuned us into each other in, in uh, really strong ways so that when, when we're just free-form improvising or whatever up on stage, you find yourself listening more actively. Uh, a little bell goes off in your head if if you if you've been ignoring what the keyboard player is doing or you've been ignoring what the drummer is doing, you start reaching out with your ears, and that's I think the most important aspect of improvised music is listening. How do you know about these exercises? We made them up. Oh, okay. 
started out with things like, I play a phrase and everyone imitates it exactly over a groove, uh, which is also hard. Uh, you'd be amazed how many people would have trouble with that, you know, if I started playing. And then everybody has to go. Very, very simple, like the most basic level. But that's what, when you're communicating with each other and you're communicating with an audience in a live setting, um, you want to be able to get what's in your heart, you know, straight out without all this, you know, uh, blocks that it has to go through an instrument and a sound system and everything before it reaches somebody's ears. And the closer you can get to directly communicating with the other musicians and the, you know, the, the, that thing that you're trying to say, the closer you can get to that, I think, the, the more powerful the experience is for somebody who comes to the concert. And so these, these exercises and simplicity help that. So you'll do that before you go on tour, or, or will you sit around this afternoon and do that? No, because you have to have uh, everybody in the same room, and that becomes hard on tour. <laughs> but we do it before we go on tour. We practice a lot. We really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. You should try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. Uh, unless it's on a typewriter, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. You could do it on a typewriter. <laughs> You're probably right. I mean, if, if somebody can play a vacuum cleaner, or they can play a typewriter, too. Uh, and in fact, uh, Brian Eno has done some really interesting stuff on the typewriter. Right. And, uh, Absolutely. So uh, didn't John Cage do uh, typewriter? Yeah, I believe so. Stuff. I believe so. I mean, I'm more familiar with the Eno stuff, but uh, yeah. right. um, so that, these that's days it would be a word processor, which doesn't make a very interesting sound. Yeah, it makes kind of a clack. It's not, <laughs> it's not really much fun, but uh, it's a lot easier to type on. So that's true. I guess when when you get up on stage at do you have any idea what's going to happen? I mean, is every night just completely different? Every night's completely different, but I usually have some idea what's going to... I personally, more than anyone else in the band, have formed some kind of song list type thing. And um, the idea, though, is that you don't have to stick to it. And so figuring out cool song lists is something that I just like doing. So I kind of... I'm always, I'm always thinking in that way. It's, it's like writing a big piece of music, you know? And they're definitely different every night. And there's definitely an anything goes attitude. Is it risky, or are you that good that you can that it's not a problem? No, it's a problem sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> and it usually is. This tour has been going very well. We've been just having the, the more. It's a funny thing because if you get tense about it, you're going to run into problems, and if you just kind of let go of yourself and whatever you know your your fears and ego and that kind of thing and get up on stage and just enjoy the experience of playing music which was the reason that we all got into this in the first place if you can maintain that then it's amazing how much fun it is and if you're having fun that's what's translating out to the audience if you're worried about proving something inevitably you're you're kind of going to fail i think what if you're worried about uh, only proving that you're good enough. <laughs> I mean, hey, you're proof, you want, just want to prove to them, yeah, we're really good, you know, and then um, I just wonder, does anybody ever get lost? In the, in the improv? Kind yeah, of? yeah, in the improv or, or oh, anywhere. Yeah, well, sometimes, certain, you know, it depends on what your mood is that day or, you know, what your girlfriend said when you called her on the phone or, and all that stuff starts to come into play. And that's part of the risk. Somebody's sick people are tired we just had a we had one gig that I, I didn't just recently that I really thought just we couldn't pull it together mm -hmm. and uh, 
it was right after, it was the night after a gig that I thought was the best gig of the tour, possibly. Uh, and there's just no telling. I mean, you, you go out and you have this incredible show, and you think, oh, it's so, it, it all feels so simple and logical, and, you know, mm-hmm. the way things, everything's coming out. And then uh, the next night, who knows? Okay. Until you're tired or something. Now you can tell. Can the audience tell? I tell you what I've. That's a really good question. I'll tell you what I've, what I've decided. All right. I think that the audience can tell when when it's re- when it's really good. Everybody knows it. There's mm-hmm. no denying it. If I'm having a bad night, I don't I don't think that people can necessarily tell. Certain people might, but in general. I, I, there've been enough times when I've said, "Boy, that gig wasn't that great," and then I talk to people in the audience, and they all say that was the best, the best show of the tour. And that happens a lot. But the only experience that I, that that I've seen that seems to be sort of universal is when something really, really great, truly great happens. I mean, out of the out of the out of the ordinary, spectacular. Everyone always seems to agree on that. The songwriting process, is this similar at all to the improvisational exercises? Do the songs come out of that? Uh, actually, pretty different uh, experience. Uh, a lot of the stuff I write, um, I think, m- most of it. And Mike writes some songs. And uh, that can, can go, can swing all the way to the other side. Like on the new album, there's a song called All Things Reconsidered, and that's composed totally, note for note, all the instruments on paper, and everybody gets their part. Um, that would be the, the, the extreme. You did that? I mean, you wrote it out on paper for everybody? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and a now, band that can actually read music, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, we, we do we do, <laughs> we do that. Um, and Mound, which is one that Mike wrote, has a big section in the middle of it that's all written out. It's really hard. It took a long time to learn. But the, the cool thing about that, again, is that if you go back and listen to that song, All Things Reconsidered, it's sort of like a fugue. It's not a strict fugue, but that it, it means that each person is playing a single line, except the piano, which is playing two single lines. So it's a four-part piece, and it's all this one theme that's getting passed around from one part to another, into the bass, blah, 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 all the way up to the end never repeating and when we play that when you go through the process of learning that which is pretty hard it's a pretty long piece of music and then to play it you 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 feel in the playing of something like that you feel locked with the other musicians in such a precise clockwork sort of way that you experience what it's like to be in that sort of space and then when you are improvising it's kind of opened up a whole having played the the written out stuff opens up a whole new realm in your mind of how good it could be. So you start striving for really hooking up with the other people as opposed to just kind of making a lot of noise or something. So that's a lot of fun, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you seem to be uh, just unlimited as far as what you will write, can write, and, uh, um, you know, you're not locked. The band doesn't seem to be at all locked into this, well, we must write a song that sounds like you know X. I mean, you don't. Or I don't mean X the band. I just write you know, whatever. Uh, it just. Uh, it, so is that the way it is? I mean, you just go. Well, here's an idea, and, and just uh, go with it. You know. Pretty much, it's 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 an open uh, open pad. I think 
for for anybody. And Mike, our bass player, just brought right before this tour, brought in this Hebrew traditional Hebrew song that's a four-part a cappella thing, sung totally in Hebrew, and beautiful piece of music, and really hard, nothing like nothing we'd ever done before. And there's always this. Actually, is, I think I'm happier about this than anything else about this particular band is that I don't think there's ever been a moment since the first couple of years of the band when someone said let's try this and everybody said oh we can't play that kind of you know and we've tried lots of things that we just are above are out of our range of capacities as musicians especially in the singing department there's like there's a thing the first the first vocal line on on rift Mm -hmm. is this a a three-part harmony that does the sort of train thing where it drops down a half time and goes up and we had written that in and none of us are gifted singers by any stretch of the imagination but we but we work at it and when we got into the studio we were working with Barry Beckett who has worked with you know Aretha Franklin and Reba McIntyre and all these really great singers and we sang him that part and the first thing that he said it was it was sort of the first hurdle that we bumped into. He said, you know, that's, that kind of a thing is, is something that only, you know, really seasoned veteran har- harmony singing groups would try, you know. <laughs> you guys just aren't, aren't really that. Yeah. And we ended up, you know, practicing it for two weeks and doing it over and over again, trying to get it so that we could, I mean, trying to stay in pitch with three people dropping down and going back up again. And finally, it ended up working out. But I don't know. There's always that kind of an attitude. Anything goes. Give it a shot. That must be fun. I mean, that's got to be a lot better than trying to sound like your last hit record or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. boy. I would, hate, I would hate that. Yeah. Taping is an interesting thing. I mean, you guys encourage it, and it apparently has really led to a, you know, a widespread increase in the interest in the band. Uh, do you think other bands are making a mistake by not allowing it? Uh, no, I don't think so, because... A lot of most other bands um, have sort of a similar show that they do every night. Right. So I know Metallica was letting people do it on the last tour. Mm-hmm. They had people taping it. Uh, the, the thing about taping for us is because it's sort of different every night, um, people trade the tapes around and, you know, it, it ends up spreading the word. We don't really sell that many records so, so far, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But so, I mean, when when something really great happens, I want people to hear it, you know? Mm -hmm. And and you're excited about it. And I I get really kind of get off on the idea that people are going to be trading the tape around. And I I used to have bootleg tapes of, I can remember a bootleg tape of Dixie Dregs I had that was when I was, you know, in high school. I used to listen to all the time. Pat Matini bootlegs. When, when he was early, <laughs> like tapes get around. I guess I'm really know. into the obscure bootlegs, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know. some of these people have huge libraries. Mostly, it's dead stuff. Yeah, but 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 people come come to you sometimes with Xerox copies of their tape libraries, and they'll have you know 50 Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and all kinds of stuff. Some of it's good. I mean, Carlos Santana when we did a tour with him. He's got a huge bootleg tape library. He's got something like two or three thousand hours of, of Hendrix 
video and audio. And, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan, he's really into it. Like that. I agree with you, I guess, now that I think about it. I mean, who would want the tape of last night's Bon Jovi show, you know, compared right. to the night before? It's because they're the same. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, once we've played the show, it, as far as I'm concerned, it's, people might as well hear it if it's on a, on a tape. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt. Right. I don't know what people are afraid of. Royalties, I guess, you know. I mean, they want their money. I guess, yeah, cutting into album sales or something. Yeah. But... I would think that it'd just encourage people to go out and buy more. You know? Yeah, if they like uh, the music, they're going to go want to go buy the album. Yeah, I mean, I doubt any deadhead stops buying dead albums because he because he gets tapes, you know. Right. But, but, um, and uh, speaking of the dead, I guess uh, you guys are compared to them all the time, and so uh, just open ended. Is there anything you want to say about that? Uh. Uh, to me, I'll, I'll say <laughs> Uh, to me, it's a ridiculous comparison because uh, the only comparison that I can really see is that you don't, you know, you play a different show every night. But right. uh, I mean, I, I don't consider the Dead adventurous in any sense. And, right. I mean, yeah, they play a different show every night, but it sounds exactly the same. And right. uh, you know, whereas you guys, who, who knows? <laughs> right. So, well, I mean, that's usually that's kind of my attitude. <laughs> I mean, not without. I mean, I don't think that, I think we're doing something different, but sometimes, it's, you know, it's, I've, what I've found is he who's writing the article is going to, or she, is going to have uh, their own opinion and it's better for, I mean, I think we're doing something different. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you either, as, as, the, as the journalist, either do or don't, and that's going to come through in this. Yeah. Article, you know. I mean, in a way, it's it's kind of ironic because the Dead, I would say, have done two real different albums: uh, Blues for All and Terrapin Station. And right. Dead generally, Deadheads don't like those albums, especially Actually, Terrapin. That was the one that I, the one that I thought was was really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are my two favorite ones of theirs, and I only own about four. But <laughs> it just seemed to me, you know, Deadheads just kind of looked down on those. And, uh, so, but when you go to see them, I mean, this they, yeah, everything is the same. I mean, it's a, I've seen them five years in a row now when they come through, and it's oh, the really? same. Yeah, it's the same essential show. Yeah, I mean, they, they, all the songs kind of sound the same. They they go off at the same time. They, you know, they they get lost at the same time. It's pretty, it's pretty different. So. Um, and uh, one other question along those lines, and of course I'm asking this uh, with uh, uh, tongue firmly in cheek. Um, in, in 25 years, do you expect to be a fat guy with a gray beard just coming out of a coma? I'm not going to be coming out of a I better not be coming out of a coma. Okay. I don't want to use you know, my body to that level. But I did have a hell of a night last night. Just, yeah. Um, you know, I'm kind of go out. I actually went and saw this thrash band and, and uh, wild band down, downtown Cincinnati. We walked into this bar. Uh, Snowblind, they were called, mm -hmm. and they were uh, two women, two men, and the lead person was a woman. Like it was a lot like Sonic Youth, sort of, but with their own personalities. Um, you know, lots of feedback, and just this woman was wild. She was like almost motionless on stage, but this wild music going. And I remember at one point she's. I'm getting off on a tangent now, but <laughs> let me pull it back. Anyway, we went over to their house and jammed all night. It was, it was great. We had like this loud jam in the basement. Okay. Um, That's really cool. Do they? Do people? That, when you walk around, people know who you are. Huh? Well, they ended up kind of knowing. Who, I 
you know, try to try to avoid it or something. I mean, no, not like it's uh, it's starting to happen more, <laughs> but it gets embarrassing sometimes a little bit, especially in that kind of a scenario because you know I was there checking out their band and really liking their band. <laughs> Whatever. I try to just ignore that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyway, uh, what, what was the question? <laughs> uh, well, we were just talking about you coming out of a coma and then... Uh... Oh, coming out of a coma and having a great beer. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to get rid of a little bit. Of, I don't have a gut, but it's starting to, starting to roll on there a little bit. I, I want to get rid of that. No, I don't want to, I don't want to be like that. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I think... Uh, sometimes I think I, I wish I could I could write for an orchestra mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes I think I don't know I mean now it's sort of like two different issues because musically what happens I think with with the success that comes and the touring that comes that has been coming to us is for one thing uh, the time pressures grow and, Hugely, it's it's harder to. Be, when we were less successful, it was almost easier to be more adventurous in the in the songwriting. Though I think that last album we continued, we managed to continue to keep pushing some kind of new boundaries, which I'm psyched about. But um, just simply because of time, because in order to write some of the really like that thing I told you about, all things reconsidered, and that took weeks of eight hours a day, or, you know, three or four hours a day, probably. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, really, you, you should go back and listen to it. I mean, no, I'm going to, yeah. It's, yeah. It, took, it took weeks. It took two or three weeks, and it's only about two minutes long, but it's totally composed, you know, and you have to sit at the piano every day with your pencil and your sharpener and your eraser and, like, go back and change the beginning and go back and rebuild the so it has. And it's so much fun. I mean, it's like doing a it's like doing a crossword puzzle or or uh, or playing chess or something, but it takes time and we don't have time anymore, right now. I mean, we were on the road for three and a half months, and then we were off for like a month and a half. At which point, I was just you know uh, moving into a house actually, and then we went back on the road for seven weeks, which is now we're home for two weeks, and then we're in L.A. for three months doing an album. So, this is maybe a roundabout way of answering your question about where am I going to be in 20 years. Uh, I'd like to have a family, kids, and some time maybe off the road. But then again, I also love playing live, so touring goes along with playing live. That's that's as far as I can think about it, I think. All right. Uh, just two other things, I'll let you go. Um, is there anything you want to tell people about the band or the show or the album that we haven't talked about? Uh, not that I can think of. Okay. And the other question I, mean, I wanted to ask you for uh, another story I'm working on is um, I want you to look in your crystal ball and uh, tell me in the year 2000, uh, what do you think music is going to be like? Oh, that's a good question. Good question. Oh, God, I've thought about that. It's definitely seeming to swing a certain way. Um, I think people are... Gosh. Let me... What do you think it's going to be like? You seem to seem to be thinking about this a lot. Yeah, I, I haven't got a real clear idea. I mean, part of me thinks that 
uh, it's gotten so fractured that it's just going to continue to fragment to the point where you can be friends with somebody and live next door to them and be listening to completely different music. Right. You know, when, I mean, I'm 34, and a friend of mine at work and I always have this conversation when we're, you know, we listen to the same music growing up, even though I grew up in New York and he grew up in Indianapolis. You know, we have the same experience. We listen to, to Top 40 radio and we listen to soul music as well as, you know, rock and whatever. And we have a common experience, but now kids really don't have that same thing. You can, because there's radio to appeal to absolutely every little. And then you've got the whole black music, white music. Right, and it's always struck me as interesting if you watch like a movie or a television show that's based around the 50s or, or before that, everybody knows the same songs. Right. And now you look at it, and I, I mean, it'd be very hard to be beyond Happy Birthday and the National Anthem. I, I can't think of too many songs that everybody knows the words to. So I, I don't know. That, that's sort of been my feeling about it. But I, I, that's a great point. I, I hadn't uh, hadn't really thought of it. Boy, um, I mean, it's got to have something to do with the state of our country, and maybe in other countries it's different. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm wondering about Canada, and if it's if it's that if it's going in that direction in Canada, um, the way it is here. Well. Uh, probably, I would think. Just maybe. Do you think that's a worldwide phenomenon or a national phenomenon? Uh, well, uh, maybe it's national because we have so much more media than everybody else. Right. But I don't know. I mean, it, it also seems to me like Fish would have been a bigger band in the 70s because I think you would have gotten on the radio really easily. Oh, that's, that whole thing's just, I mean, you know, radio is just getting so conservative. Uh, I, I, I think if it wasn't for, I mean, we haven't we haven't made a video yet uh, by conscious choice because uh, I'm not all that big a fan of that either. But but uh, and we we may we will actually. I'm sh this is this is just opening up a whole new conversation. But radio, I think is is I think if it wasn't for MTV, if there's only if there's one thing you can say for MTV. If it wasn't for MTV, you would wouldn't have. You know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And Maybe you wouldn't. I don't think you'd have them. I don't think you'd have them as fast. But I don't think they would have gotten the Radio is, I'm just finding out more and more, radio is ultra-conservative. Yeah. Ultra-conservative. But um, you could look at, at it in another way. Um, for example, you're coming here, you're going to sell out, a lot, most likely, a 1,900-seat theater. I haven't seen an ad for it. Oh, really? Okay, or heard an ad for it. I guess they, they probably didn't think it was really that important. Right. Maybe there have been ads, and, and they just didn't come my way. Uh -huh. But um, They certainly haven't heard anything on the radio. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a weird kind of radio town. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, the big rock station place. Uh, you know, I think it's the all John Mellencamp station, oh, yeah. all Mellencamp all the time. And then uh, we have an all, uh, an all adult alternative station that's really good i mean i you know plays tends to play a lot of stuff that i like even though they're not particularly adventurous and you know i, I don't know if, if 
people would know exactly where to, you know, where they would try to sell, uh, you know, your band uh, to, you know, to, to advertise it and get uh, people to come out to the show. Although I think it's going to sell out word of mouth wise. Right. Anyway, it's it's hard to say, uh, you know, where things like that go. But it occurs to me that if you were around in the 70s and there were fewer uh, there were fewer bands then there were fewer bands competing for right. things and the stations were more wide open uh, that, that you'd be on the radio without any uh, without any trouble whereas now I mean I'm sure nobody has any idea where to put you no and they, I mean they've tried you know our record company is scratching their heads yeah. we're selling way more concert tickets than records none of the radio stations there's nothing we didn't put a single on the radio <laughs> We, were, we got into this concept thing, you know, and off it went, so. Yeah. But I like it, so. Well, as long as they can live with that, that's not bad. But, you well, know, you at least they feel like, at least we're not getting, I mean, like one of the higher level executives came to a, came to a show recently in Boston. And in Boston, we're, it's kind of our most popular area, so we had sold out like a 17,000 seat venue. Oh my god. Did you play Boston Garden? Or? No, we played at uh, Great Woods. Oh, okay. And um, he came backstage and you know, all he could say was, well, you guys are doing your job. <laughs> I guess we're not doing ours or something because, I mean, I don't care. I, I'm having a great time and things are going fine for me. Well, I've written about it and suggested that radio is the place, should be a place where you learn. Because when I was a kid, that's where you learn about music. I mean, right. that's where I first heard virtually everything that I like. Right. Um, whereas that that doesn't even come close to happening now. No. I mean, if, even uh, before I had this job, uh, just as a, a general consumer, I would either hear it from a friend or read about it or, you know, th there would any other way but radio. Radio wasn't telling me anything that I needed to know. This is why, why we rely so much on the concert taping and stuff mm -hmm. because um, yeah I mean what you just said hearing it from a friend or getting a tape from a friend the other thing that we found is that when that I mean because of the state of radio you're not gonna it doesn't mean anything anymore I think like I remember growing up it was kind of a special thing maybe it still is for kids I don't know a special thing though listening you know listening to the radio and waiting for and now I don't know. It's just uh, it doesn't mean much, and I think if you if your crowd has been if you've developed your crowd through word of mouth, one friend telling you this other friend, and or hearing some kind of bootleg tape or something, I think you're just a lot more excited, intent on coming and having the experience of the concert and really getting into it. Whereas if you've got some radio hit these days, um, you know the people that show up at the concert are. It's just a whole different feeling mm -hmm. than you, I guess. They're sitting on their hands waiting for the radio. Yeah. <laughs> and everything else is... I've seen it happen with some friends. And yeah, I mean, it just seems like it's built to be very disposable. And uh, yeah. that's why you see so many of these one-hit wonders. And I mean, they're more now than there have ever been, I think. And right. they, they just come and, come and go. They have a hit or two. and. They can't follow it up, and by the time they follow it up, people aren't interested anyway. They've moved right, on to the moved next on thing. To band. Yeah. So uh, anyway, back to the question: Where where is music going to be in 2000? Do you think? I'd like to think that there's there's 
going to be a backlash against this kind of conservatism and that people will start uh, trying uh, trying new things and, and sort of some kind of under underground upheaval would, would start and a whole bunch of underground bands and then maybe some good college radio stations and then maybe some brave this is the optimistic view here <laughs> some brave radio station would realize that people are sick of it and, and really want to hear something different hopefully the you know the pendulum will swing uh, and it'll go the other way yeah I mean the economy is going to have a lot to do with you know the 80s you had this just a horrible period for music and it was in the middle of this whole Reagan thing and now uh, we're you know yeah. economically and on this downslide and maybe that I think that that sometimes results in good music uh, no, I mean, <laughs> well it's possible I guess you don't sound too, you don't sound too well, I'm, I'm just I, I think there's a lot of really good music out there and I think it's not getting to people and right um, you know I, I, I'm always very quick to blame radio for that and I'm, you know I but I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, it's hard to tell. I just, uh, I mean, I'm sitting here. I'm looking at. A st I got a stack of about 30 CDs on my desk. A lot of great music. Most of which I'm sure no one's ever heard or heard of. Right. And uh, I think that's kind of bad. I think that's that's bad for music. And, uh, it's bad when they get the mentality that if you don't sell 10 million records, then you failed somehow. Yeah. Oh, that is. We've actually had to have, and it's, it's been, our relationship with the record company has been very good, but there, even just the slightest tinge of that, uh, you know, that I've gotten from the record company has resulted in me making a couple of phone calls and saying, look, we have in no way failed. This is exactly what we've always wanted to be. I feel like we made a great record. It's challenging, it's different. No one ever expected it. No, none of us ever expected it to sell because we knew there was nothing for the radio. And, uh, I mean, you can fall into that trap. And I think even in their defense, even people in the record company, sometimes they're, they're, there's not really evil intent, you know. But suddenly you wake up one morning and you realize you've been viewing it as a failure. This, this record sold less than our last record. And, you know, our concert tickets have doubled or something. Uh, so, in a from an industry standpoint, you might—that's kind of a—I guess that's a failure. You want to double your record sales with each record or something like that, as a as a general rule. Plus, I think you uh, are going to get since you get lumped into that spin doctor stuff. Oh, that was a big. <laughs> then that's that's a killer because then they go well. Spin Doctor sold five million records. Why haven't you sold five million oh, yeah. records? Oh yeah, that happened. That happened. I mean, there was this sudden push, like we're gonna break fish, right? <laughs> and it's just—it wasn't gonna happen. You know? And uh, I know those guys have to go back in now. They're friends of mine. They're—they're they're all doing out doing that. Because uh, we used to play with them a lot. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can. Yeah, they're they're a good band. They they've come through a couple of times on this tour, and they have uh, 
been very different. Uh, the first time, very loose and jammy and just, um, you know, that, that kind of happy sounding Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, it just generally, the set generally sounded like that. Right. Last time they came through, really just harsh, um, very, very straightforward, really darker sounding wow. band. It was really cool. I mean, they, they they had evolved. It almost seemed like they were saying, "Hey, you guys are going to lump us in this category, but we're not that song, and we're going to we're going right. to go on." I mean, you know, we're good players, and we're going to show you. And, and That's great. They did so. That was the Soul Asylum thing. Yeah, they came through twice. Uh, they, no, the first time they came through on their own, and then the second time they came through with the Alternative Nation. Oh. Uh, tour, yeah. Soul Asylum was just awful, but uh, uh, but the Spin Doctors were real surprising. That was a real good night. That's great, great to hear. But yeah, I mean, you, I, I imagine you're just running into tons of that kind of. Uh, well, we record. were. It, it's over. Yeah. I mean, Soul Asylum's a big band now. Yeah. Cover the Rolling Stone, you know, in the 15 minutes or whatever. Right. Which is great, good. They're probably relieved. <laughs> So they can move on to their next album. And, well, yeah, you know. I, I don't know what their plan is, but when they were here, they seemed to be doing everything to uh, counterman what they had what they had achieved so far. They just came out and played one of the sloppiest sets that uh, that I've seen in a long time, from especially from a band that was trying, you know, that was supposed to be out there trying to push itself. Right. Uh, came out and just. Uh, they did five covers in a row at one point in the set. Really? Yeah, including um, Earache My Eye by Cheech and Chong. Really? And, uh, yeah. What? Uh, now, when was this? This was uh, a few weeks ago, about two Man, or three weeks that's ago. Great. They're, 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 I did see them right near the beginning of the tour. Yeah. And they had they hadn't gotten that. I think they were doing still the you know the show. Right. I think at that point, but it was the beginning of this big. Maybe what happened was they. Uh, like I said, I was talking to him and everything. I was definitely sensing a little bit of a nearing a breaking point. Yeah. Uh, which is good. It sounds like they they hit it. They they picked a great producer for their next album. But then what I mean by great is uh, I'm spacing on the guy's name right now. But great in the sense that not a pop hit rock producer. This is Soul Asylum you're talking no, about. No, I'm talking about. Oh, I'm talking about the Spin Doctors. Okay. Okay. Oh, you're talking about Soul Asylum? Yeah, I had been talking about Soul Asylum. Oh, yeah, no, Soul Asylum was the one who came out and played really sloppy and did a lot of covers and stuff. Spin Doctors came out and just absolutely just cranked it up. That's great. Yeah, they were, uh, they were good. Anyway, well, I, I, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, if there was anything else you wanted to add, that'd be fine. I think that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time. Unfortunately, uh, you're here on the same night as Clint Black, so I'll be at the Clint Black show, right. but uh, hopefully you'll come back. We'll be back. <laughs> we come, we're, we're always on the road, it seems like. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.